Good morning. Welcome again. We're going to continue in 2 Samuel. It's on page 225 or so, if you're in one of the Blue Bibles. Starting at 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 11. Verse 12. 2 Samuel 2, 12. I put the, uh, there's a lot of names, a lot of Hebrew names in this chapter that are hard to keep straight. I wrote them out for you guys in the little outline to help you keep it all straight and who these people are. Abner the son of Ner and the servants of Ishbosheth the son of Saul went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab the son of Zeruiah and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, Let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, Let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number, twelve for Benjamin and Ishbosheth the son of Saul, and twelve of the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore that place was called Helkath Hazarim, which is at Gibeon. And the battle was very fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. And the three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Now Asahel was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle, And Asahel pursued Abner, and as he went, he turned neither to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is it you, Asahel? And he answered, It is I. Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left. Seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to Asahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? But he refused to turn aside. Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear, so that the spear came out at his back. And he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. And as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Ammah, which lies before Gia on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on the top of a hill. Then Abner called to Joab, Shall the sword devour forever? Don't you know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? And Joab said, As God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would have not given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more. Nor did they fight anymore. And Abner and his men went all that night through the Arabah. They crossed the Jordan, and marching the whole morning, they came to Mahanaim. Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner. And when he had gathered all the people together, they were missing from David's servants 19 men besides Asahel. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin 360 of Abner's men. And they took up Asahel and buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Ammon of Hinnom of Jezreel, and his second Kiliab of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel, and the third Absalom, the son of Makkah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur, and the fourth Adonijah, the son of Haggith, and the fifth Shephatiah, the son of Abital, and the sixth Ethriam of Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David. 
in Hebron. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, your word is sharper than any sword. It cuts down deep into our souls, exposing us in our pretensions and our delusions about ourselves before you and other people. Humble us by your word this morning in the ways that we tend to battle against other people in opposition to you. But give us hope in showing us the light of Jesus who came to rescue us from our strivings and our quarrels. For we pray in his name. Amen. When we got our first flock of backyard chickens, somebody who had grown up with them, I've told a couple of you this when you've gotten chickens, somebody who grew up with them told us uh, that we would need to remember that having chickens would be a series of small tragedies. Most of the chicken tragedies that we have experienced, and we have experienced many of them, most of them have come in the middle of the night when I was thinking that I would be resting and at peace. Our passage today is describing the beginning of a series of big tragedies for David. Like my small tragedies, David's big tragedies are coming at a time when he thought he was going to finally get some rest. He had been anointed as God's chosen king over Israel, but then he spent 10 or 15 years fleeing, fleeing from the threats and the plots of Saul, the previous but now rejected king. Last week we heard about Saul's humiliating death. So the path is now finally clear for David to ascend to the throne over God's people. But these next few chapters of 2 Samuel are going to mainly describe the turmoil and the tragedies that come to David during many years of civil war between the followers of David and the followers of Saul. David is not going to be at peace after all. But before the story descends into the darkness of the human heart in its opposition to God's king and his kingdom, and as it does that, it warns us about the ways that we might do that, the ways that people do that in our world. Before it descends there, we start out with a positive and a promising start. There's an encouragement here for us at the beginning of this civil war. Verses 1 to 7 show us how David's kingdom is small, but it's growing. It's small, but it's growing. Saul has died apart from any involvement by David. And now that David has mourned his death from his place of exile among the Philistines, he now turns to the Lord to understand, how am I supposed to get onto the throne? So it says, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said, go up to Hebron. Hebron was not just any old city. It was the biggest city in David's homeland of Judah. Judah was the tribe. Uh, God had said that from this tribe, God's promised Messiah would come. The city of Hebron pops up all over the book of Genesis. That's the first book in the Bible. Uh, as Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are wandering all over the promised land, uh, they tend to focus quite a bit around Hebron. And we read a lot about how all of them were building altars in Hebron, about how they buried their dead there in anticipation of the day when God would one day settle down with all of their descendants in the whole promised land. And so there's deep theological significance to David going to Hebron. This is the foothold. This is the beachhead of God's kingdom in the promised land. We see that David, unlike Saul had been, we see that David is eager to listen to the Lord. He's eager to do what he says. He depends on God and on God's word rather than himself. That was the great tragedy, the great flaw of Saul. He just wouldn't obey. As the king who obeys the word of the Lord, David is worthy to be anointed 
to rule over and bless the Lord's people. So we read that the men of Judah came and anointed David as king over the house of Judah. They are enacting and recognizing something that God had already done uh, when David was secretly anointed by Samuel. When God told Samuel, go and anoint David, he's going to be the new king. So now it's done publicly by the people of Judah. David's obedience to God, David's submission to God, it's a glimpse of the greater obedience of his greater son, Jesus, who would, one would come and would say that he came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent him. In his obedience to the Father, Jesus is worthy to rule. He's able to bless all those who love him. And it's true about Jesus, even though, like with David here, Jesus' kingdom has a small beginning. David is only the king over one tribe. The great question mark of the next few chapters is whether the other 11 tribes are also going to come to love David and enjoy his blessing. One of the primary themes of Jesus' teaching was that his kingdom had a serious but a small beginning. Uh, Even after Jesus ascends into heaven to take his throne at the hand of the Father, where he's ruling over the church, even ruling over the entire world, Jesus' kingdom even now still often appears to be weak. It often seems to be hidden behind small things and small people. But he promises us, and he's shown us throughout the history of the church, that there is a great power behind his kingdom and through his kingdom, always at work. In the words of the Apostle Paul, when the world looks at the cross, which is at the center of Jesus' kingdom, all the world can see is foolishness and weakness. But Paul says that the reality is that the cross and the people that are created by the cross are actually where you find God's real wisdom and real power. Even though the world looks at it and says, this is foolish, it's ridiculous. You also get a glimpse of the nature of God's kingdom as we see David extending love and mercy to the men of Jabesh-Gilead. You see that in verses 4 to 7. Uh, This is a group of people who are outside of Judah. They are in Saul's territory, so to speak. Uh, They were the ones who, out of loyalty to Saul, had retrieved his mangled corpse from the ghoulish Philistines and given it a proper burial. David hears about what they have done for his rival, but instead of responding with insecurity or paranoia, David invites them to enjoy God's blessing, to enjoy it through his own kingdom. He says, May the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. I will do good to you. And so you can see what David's saying. He says, The way that you can enjoy God's faithful, committed love is by entering into a committed relationship with me, his king. It's very similar to how the Gospels tell us that Jesus came preaching that we must repent. That means get right with God, start living in a way that's appropriate for knowing who God is. Jesus said that we must repent because in him, the kingdom of God has now arrived. Jesus is the son of David. He's God's anointed king. We can find God's steadfast love and faithfulness only in and through bowing the knee to Him. No matter what kinds of loyalties we might have or how noble they might be. Matthew 11 says it like this. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. He extends God's mercy and love to those who are outside just like David does here. We don't know how the people of Jabesh-Gilead responded to David's generous offer. The passage leaves us hanging. 
All we know is how the people of Judah have responded with love and with loyalty. But the next couple chapters show us how many other people responded to David, not with love and with loyalty, but with hatred and opposition. The first paragraph of the chapter shows us that David's kingdom is small but growing, but the next few chapters are going to show us that David has an opposition against him that's strong but failing. In chapter 2, verse 8, you start to hear about this guy named Abner. He's popped up a couple times in 1 Samuel. He was the commander over Saul's army. He was Saul's cousin. You see in these chapters what a hard and what a brutal man he is. He's one of the main pieces in this complicated narrative that is vividly depicting the depravity of the human heart in its hunger for power and for prestige. Abner is the kingmaker. He's the strong man in Saul's realm. Saul's one surviving son, Ishbosheth, is almost entirely passive and weak. You hear that Abner, notice how Abner is the subject of all these verbs, not Ishbosheth. Abner took the son of Saul. Abner brought him over to Mahanaim. Abner made him king over all of Israel. And so you have the strong man Abner effectively ruling the 11 other tribes through a puppet king. He seeks his own status and power even if he hides behind a thin veneer of institutional and procedural respectability. You can almost imagine a Netflix movie being made about Abner, about how by his own willpower, by his own strength, he overcomes humiliation and defeat to find success in the world. What an inspiring story. But unlike what we just heard about David, there's no mention of depending on God. There's no mention of seeking what God wants him to do. He just has a raw quest for control. At verse 12, you have a showdown between the military commanders of David and Saul. Abner for Saul marches toward Judah, and then Joab for David goes out to meet him. It's not entirely clear. There's a lot in this story that's not totally clear, and I think that's probably by design. It's not entirely clear here who the aggressor is. But Abner proposes that they settle their conflict by picking 12 men from each side to duke it out with each other. It sounds strange to us, but it's actually not that different from how people today settle their conflicts by sending out a platoon of lawyers to fight for them and see who comes out on top. Joab agrees. They seem to think that whoever wins the contest is going to show that they have God on their side. But in verse 16, the showdown ends in a bloody disaster. There's no clear victor. All 24 of these young men have been killed. Part of the idea, I think, is underscoring for us how horrific it is when God's people turn on each other to destroy each other. It's not clear which side God's on. It's disgusting. And like our conflicts so often do, this initial skirmish spills out into a much wider and longer and bloodier war. It says the battle was very fierce that day. Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Abner's been playing with fire. He gets burned. And so now he and his men are fleeing for their lives. The men of David pursue them under the command of Joab, whose brother Asahel is now running faster in front of everybody else, trying to go after the hated Abner. Abner keeps looking back as he's running. He's trying to get Asahel to stop chasing him. He even offers him one of his own soldiers and says, well, take that guy instead. But Asahel won't give up. And then Abner says, you know, we don't have to do this. I don't want to have to kill you because if I do, that's going to make things with your brother Joab much worse. But Asahel won't give up. He keeps sprinting towards him. And in this desperate act of self-defense, Abner finally just plants his spear into the ground. 
And Asahel, sprinting forward, impales himself on it so that the spear comes out at his back. He falls there and he dies where he was. All those who came to the place where Asahel had fallen stood still. The whole thing is so shocking and gruesome that Joab's men give up the pursuit. So shocked at what's happened. The Bible is often very gruesome in the way it depicts things and describes things. Flannery O'Connor was trying to do the same things with her stories and talking about how God is at work in the grotesque and the ugly because we tend to get lulled to uh, uh, apathy by things that we're so familiar with. So this here, this image here of this man being stabbed through the stomach out his back and all these soldiers stopping, shocked at what they've just seen, it's meant to show us again how ugly all this is. Joab and his surviving brother Abishai, they keep chasing Abner until Saul's own tribe of Benjamin shows up. And then Abner calls out to Joab in verse 26. He says, shall the sword devour forever? Don't you know that the end is going to be bitter? How long is it going to take until you tell these guys to stop chasing their brothers? Joab wisely, I think, takes the off-ramp that Abner offers him, especially in light of the arrival of reinforcements. Now, it's unclear. You can maybe help me out. It's unclear to me. I've been thinking about this all week. It's unclear if Abner really means what he's saying or if he's just saying it for his own benefit now that he's losing the battle. But in any case, the words that he's saying, the content is wise. It is horrible when people allow themselves to get sucked into feuds of aggression and bitterness, feuds that spiral further and further down because nobody wants to admit their fault or swallow their pride. And that's particularly true when God's own people are waging war with each other. Uh, There's probably somebody here who needs to rely on God's love and mercy and forgiveness to take the first steps to start resolving some conflict that you've been involved in for a long time, to depend on God's love so that you have the strength to admit your fault, even if it's small, even if you're not the one who started it. Chapter 3 opens with a summary of this brutal civil war. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. David grew stronger and stronger. The house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And so in spite of this great opposition that David is facing, all this misery driven by ambition and bitterness, at the end of the day, David's kingdom is still growing. You hear in verses 2 to 5 that David's family is growing too. But here we are already getting a clue that David is sowing the seeds of his own destruction. David now has six wives. I don't know if you're able to count all of them. They're all listed out pretty quickly there. He has six wives now. Uh, In the ancient world, kings would marry into multiple surrounding tribes and families and nations for the sake of political expedience. It was a way of accumulating power and of protecting yourself. Now, God had explicitly forbidden the kings of Israel from accumulating wives. He also forbade them from accumulating gold and weapons and armies. And the first chapters of Genesis make it clear that God wants lifelong monogamy in marriage. Jesus echoed the same thing. So these verses are ominous for all of his virtues, for all of the ways we like to bring David out for our Sunday school lessons uh, to talk about what it means to follow God. For all those things, David is now seeking power on the world's terms and with the world's methods. So often in the church's history, it's been tempted to do the same thing, 
as it seeks to spread God's kingdom here on earth, choosing the path of least resistance and greatest power, even when it comes to cutting corners on what God actually wants and the ways that he wants us to grow his kingdom. As the book of 2 Samuel plays out, rivalry from, between David's different sons that we've just heard about, these sons from different wives, the rivalry between them is going to destroy his family. It's going to destroy his kingdom. By the end of 2 Samuel, uh, we're very depressed about David. Uh, he turns out, his family turns out to be a great mess. And it starts here uh, with him breaking God's law, doing things that God said not to do. David is a great king, but even he is marked by moral and spiritual failure. Even David gives in to the siren songs of the world about power and about prestige. Our world and God's people need a better king than David. We need a king who does not succumb to our universal tendency to promote ourselves and to oppose God while telling ourselves that we're not really opposing God. The chapter offers many warnings to us. It warns us about our tendency to do what Abner did, our tendency to grasp for control over our circumstances and submit to what God wants because doing so will mean losing comfort and losing status. It warns us about manipulating other people to promote ourselves and secure ourselves. It warns us about using other people for our own goals and our own pleasure. The passage also warns us about how dangerous our conflicts are, the ways that they can so quickly spiral into mutually assured destruction. In many ways, this story seems very foreign to us. It's very far away from us and our culture. Uh, it's brutal. You might look at it and think that you're far from taking up your sword against your enemies. But we need to remember Jesus' shocking words that envy and slander and bitterness and anger are really just murder transposed into another key. We're not so far away from these things as we like to think we are. And so if you're here today and you are smoldering with anger, you need to understand how much danger you're in to yourself and to other people. The Apostle James says, Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. These terrible chapters are a vivid illustration of that. Man's anger, not working God's ways in the world. The text also warns us about the ways that we tend to justify ourselves in the midst of conflict. Abner resists God's work. He knows that David is God's anointed king. That's going to become clear next week. Uh, and even though he knows the right things, he knows who David is, uh, even still he seizes control and he starts a war. But then when things don't go his way, he is suddenly Mr. Diplomacy. He says, whoa, like, can't we just all get along here? Oh, well, this, you know, this is a really bad idea. We shouldn't be fighting with each other. I just want to be left alone. Can't we just all live in peace now? And like I said, I don't know if Abner is saying all that sincerely, but it's a somber warning about the ways that we too can criticize and attack other people, uh, but then get pretty pious when the tables are turned on us. Self-pity and self-righteousness and self-interest are often lurking just behind the right words and even the right intentions. We often use them as a fortress from which we can assault other people and defend ourselves. It's a depressing chapter. The next few chapters are largely more of the same from slightly different angles. Uh, this bloody depiction of the human heart's lust for control and sovereignty over against God at the expense of other people. 
Like we heard from Isaiah 9 in our call to worship, we are living in a world of deep darkness. This story depicts that. But at the same time, the text is offering us a shining light. It offers us real hope, real salvation from the vortex of human aggression. God's kingdom is here. It's growing. And with it, God's peace and God's blessing and God's faithfulness. Just like David held out the olive branch to the people of Jabesh Gilead, so also and in a much better way, Jesus is offering God's perfect love to us today. Not just to one little tribe, but to the entire world. I'll close with this. Jesus said, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Let's pray. Jesus, we long for your abundant life in this world of abundant death. Convict us for the ways that we justify ourselves in our aggression against other people, for the ways that we strive for power with the world's methods and on the world's terms. Help us instead to gladly and humbly welcome your mercy and your blessing through your King. And as his ambassadors, teach us to extend your love and blessing to everyone around us. For we ask it in the name of your King. Amen.